Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I run the production advice website where I help you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me again this week is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net. John, how are you? Hello, everyone. I'm doing great. This week, we are going to be talking about something really nerdy, just for a change. Um, It's a potential problem with digital audio called aliasing. For some reason, there's been a little flurry of people talking about it online, lots of discussions on Facebook, people kind of testing plugins and showing that aliasing does or doesn't happen and all this kind of thing. And there's a lot of confusion about it. Um, In particular, there's lots of people saying that it's uh, in some way, some kind of fundamental flaw of digital audio and and the reason why digital can never sound as good as analog. Um, And we're going to talk about why that really isn't the case. Um, It's something you need to be aware of, and it does have some ramifications for... Uh, the way you work and the quality of the the results that you achieve and how you achieve them, but it's not a fundamental problem with digital audio. Thank goodness I missed all of those discussions, because <laughs> wow, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's another topic we'll get to towards the end is is whether you can actually hear this stuff or not. But um, uh, I mean, I said it, that it's um, a type of sampling error. I mean, I guess we should start by talking about what it actually is, um, and in a nutshell, it's the problem of not having enough samples to correctly represent the frequency of the thing you're trying to sample. Um, and you guys have probably seen it in films, which we'll talk about in a minute. But John, you brought up a great example of a place where you can see this happening in the real world uh, using a good old analog system. So actually on a, a record player, uh, good old vinyl we've got these little silver and black rectangles underneath the platter. Um, and there's a little light bulb that shines on that. And when the record player is spinning at the correct speed, those lines will, or the little rectangles actually look like they're not moving at all. And uh, when it's just a little bit too fast or too slow, then they're going to be, you'll see them spinning, but there's some sort of uh, kind of optical illusion of frequency of that, light bulb flickering and the speed that those rectangles are passing through the light that it makes it look like it's uh, not moving at all and the different switches for the speed of the record will affect that as well it's a very interesting effect and there's some other ways that we can see that in real life Uh, but we're going to focus on audio this time yeah absolutely i love that you reminded me about that on record players because it just took me right back to when my dad got his first sort of high quality turntable and I just love the effect of switching from it wasn't so high quality that you had to change the belt to change the speed of the record but you 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 flicked a switch and it would go from say 33 to 45 and you would see uh, there were three or four different layers of those the kind of jeweled pattern on the edge of the platter and and you'd see them shift and they'd spin and then they kind of settle down and then you had a little fine tune adjustment to to get it so that the 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 rectangle seemed to stand completely still the other place people are likely to have seen this is in film looking at the wheels of a wagon. It's called the wagon wheel effect, um, where you know we all know that the wheels are going forwards, but sometimes they look as though they're going backwards uh, and traveling really slowly, or maybe even sometimes almost standing still, which is a similar kind of effect. But it's quite an easy way to imagine what's happening. So the film is composed of 24 frames per second. Uh, with analog film 
if you just imagine the, the cartwheels turning, if the cartwheel turned exactly 10, 24 times a second, by the time you've got to the next frame, the wheel will be back where it started because it will have done one complete revolution. So if the speed of the wheel turning matches the sampling rate of the film, 24 frames per second, the wheel will actually look as though it's standing still. If you imagine this wheel is turning ever so slightly slower than 24 times a second, then in the time it takes for one image in the film to move to the next image in the film, the wheel won't actually have got all the way round. Imagine one of the spokes on the wheel was coloured red. If that started off at 12 o'clock, it would probably only have reached 11 o'clock. And then by the time the next frame of the film comes, it'll only have reached 10 o'clock and then 9 o'clock. So when you play that film back, it actually then looks like the wheel is going slowly backwards. So that's exactly the same effect, and it's called aliasing. And in fact, it's, it's really interesting. If you, if you had a, a smoothly turning wheel and you recorded it on film, or actually even if you recorded it on a mobile phone that obviously has a digital frame rate, you guys might have seen videos on mobile phones of guitar strings where you can actually, they, the guitar strings seem to have slowed down and you can see the ripples running up and down the strings. That's exactly the same effect by the sampling speed, the number of images being recorded per second is not sufficient to accurately record the movement of the strings. Um, and therefore we see something different. It appears to be much slower. Yeah, so if you watch a wheel kind of accelerating, to begin with it looks as though uh, it's traveling the right speed. And we know that by the time it gets to the same speed as the, the frame rate of the film, it'll look like it's stopped. Prior to that, it kind of slows down. And then once it starts traveling faster than the frame rate of the film, it will actually start to look as though it goes backwards. And it will gradually get faster and faster and faster backwards until eventually then it starts to slow down again and eventually stops. And then it'll start going forwards again. You're kind of getting this mirror image. So it accelerates and it decelerates and it starts going backwards you have this mirroring of the original frequency. And the reason I've explained all of that in such excruciating detail is that something very similar happens in audio. In audio, the sampling frequency is obviously in digital audio. It's the number of samples per second that we use to record. Um, and it turns out that the that halfway point is really important. You need to have a sampling frequency of twice the highest frequency you want to record to record it accurately. Uh, remember the cartwheel. Uh, when it was traveling half the speed of the film, it looks fine. And it's as it starts to get past that, that it starts to slow down and eventually stop. If we go back and think about the same situation with audio as we did with film, if you're trying to record a sound with the same frequency as the sampling rate, the audio wave repeats once per sample. So every sample will be equal. It will be taking a sample of the waveform at the same point on the waveform every time. If we imagine just a simple sine wave, let's say that the, the sampling point occurs at the top of the first peak in the sine wave, the frequency of that wave equals the sampling frequency. By the time you get to the next sample, the wave will have repeated perfectly and uh, reached the same signal level as it was to begin with, just like the wagon wheel reached the same point. At that point, every sample that we take will give the same value. Uh, and the sound will appear to have a frequency of zero hertz, just as the wagon wheel appeared to stop. And in exactly the same way, the halfway point is really important. As soon as the frequency of the sound you're trying to sample exceeds half the sampling frequency, 
you start getting these errors where you don't have enough samples anymore to accurately track the frequency of the recorded sine wave. And in fact, what you hear if you run a sweep tone through, you will hear the frequency of it go up until it reaches half the sample frequency, but then you will hear it coming back down again. Just like you see the wagon wheel decelerate, the frequency of the sine wave drops right back down uh, until it's equal and you get that point where you, the frequency appears to be zero. And if the frequency of that wave starts continues to go up, it will start going back up again. So you have this same mirroring effect in terms of frequencies. And actually, if you look at it on a frequency spectrum, you can actually see it's almost like the frequency response of the signal has been reflected in a mirror that is at this halfway point, uh, halfway to the sampling frequency. And that Halfway point is so important that it has a name. It's called the Nyquist frequency, uh, named after Harry Nyquist, who invented the sampling theorem. He was the guy who figured all of this stuff out uh, for the first time. So those mirror images of the frequency response that are caused by this aliasing problem are called aliases. And that is the root of the problem. You hear extra frequencies that are not supposed to be there because the sample rate is not sufficient to accurately capture the waveform. And at this point, people go, boom, QED. Digital audio can't possibly accurately record an analog signal because of aliasing. Um, and that's where we go, no, because remember we said it was a sampling error. It's a problem. Any digital audio system that allows aliasing to take place uh, has a problem. It's fundamentally flawed. The sampling theorem says that you have to restrict the frequency bandwidth of the thing you're recording to half the sample rate in order to get an accurate reproduction. And that's why the frequency response of a 44.1 sampling rate system only goes up to 20 kilohertz, actually 22 kilohertz, but 20 kilohertz in order to uh, give us a little bit of leeway. And the reason you need the leeway is that you have to make absolutely sure that there aren't any frequencies above 20 kilohertz in order to not get aliasing, which means that you have to filter them out. Um, and the filter that does that job is called an anti-aliasing filter. So it's one of those cases where I feel like I've been talking for a long time. How am I doing, John? Yeah, you have. Take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just thinking as you're saying that, um, one way we can kind of test this or, or play around with uh, the sampling rate and the way that we can um, get these mirrored frequencies uh, is actually with a lo-fi plugin. So like Pro Tools has the Air lo-fi plugin. Uh, you can get that as a VST pretty cheap as well. Uh, and there's lots of other like lo-fi um, bit crushing sorts of effects. But with those plugins, you can usually set the sample rate, just set it to anything below normal, going to have all sorts of obvious artifacts. And everyone kind of knows these sort of lo-fi sounds from a lo-fi plugin or, you know, uh, broken digital gear. And it's one way that we can get the um, aliasing distortion, uh, that, that big problem with digital audio, in an audible range. And it's something that we can, um, we, we can mess around with anti-aliasing filters often in these plugins uh, to minimize that effect or 
even increase the effect. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, and I think actually you've hit there on, on one of the reasons that people do think that this is some kind of fundamental flaw of digital audio, because I think uh, early digital systems probably didn't include certainly not really effective anti-aliasing filters. Some of them probably didn't have any anti-aliasing at all. Um, and and I mean, there's probably is, a lot of things uh, out there early on that didn't have the the high enough sampling rate. You know, maybe like a 12-bit sampler only had a 22 kilohertz sampling rate, which means that you can only record up to 12K. Absolutely. I, I, the first um, bit of actual electronic music gear that I ever owned was a, a Commodore Amiga A1200, and I ran a bit of software called Octomed on it, which was able to play back four 8-bit audio samples. Um, they were undithered, and they were aliased to hell and back, because um, usually the sample, I think they did have a 16 kilohertz sampling frequency originally. Um, so yeah, lots of us, our first experience of digital audio would either have been kind of stuff that was meant to be hi-fi, but maybe wasn't quite up to scratch, or yeah. was never even expected to be hi-fi. Was just kind of being functional. But the, like yeah, toys. Those, yeah, absolutely. Those those artifacts are kind of part of the what we thought about digital audio. So you hear that crunchy eight-bit sound, and you think, well, that's what it has to sound like. But actually, if you used noise-shaped dither in an eight-bit sample with a decent sampling rate, it can sound kind of reasonable. You can yeah. get almost 12-bit fidelity from it. So, so I kind of yeah. love those those artifacts as a musical choice, but I don't want to process my masters through that or get that sort of thing when I'm rendering and I might not hear it in the actual mix or during the work. It is something that we need to be aware of when we're working. Absolutely, and particularly because we're using plugins all the time uh, in digital audio. I mean, these days you would hope that the the analog to digital converter has proper anti-aliasing filters in it. Um, and we could talk in a minute uh, a little bit about what the kind of what that means in terms of proper anti-aliasing. Um, and you would hope that your converter that you're playing back on also has, because you have to do the same thing when you play the audio back. You have to filter it again to make sure that the output is clean. But it's not guaranteed that the plugins that we use will have that. And that's not necessarily a problem if, say, it's an EQ plugin, uh, for example, where you know if it's a clean digital EQ, you have a frequency response that goes up to about 20K with your input signal. You can't boost, you can't create any frequencies that weren't there to begin with. Um, so whatever you do with the EQ plugin, there's never going to be anything above 20 kilohertz to cause any aliasing problems. Uh, so you're fine. And the same thing actually applies with a lot of audio signals in the first place. Quite a lot of acoustically recorded sound won't have those really high frequencies in it. Either the microphones won't go that high or the the electronics that they run through um, may not have that high of uh, frequency response. So there may be nothing there to, to worry about in the first place. But there are a lot of really popular, particularly distortion plugins around these days uh, not the kind of bit crusher stuff that you're talking about, which I agree is it can be a, a fantastic creative tool for certain situations. You know, maybe say a saturation plugin or something that emulates analog tape or whatever. And one of the main properties of distortion tends to be that it generates extra harmonics. You know, you get extra harmonics from valve distortion, from saturation, from clipping, all of these kind of distortion processes 
generate extra harmonics. And if those extra harmonics go above the Nyquist frequency, then you're going to get aliasing. And that's one reason that lots of people advocate running uh, digital audio workstations at a higher sampling rate, just to avoid that risk. So if, even if you're not recording at high sample rates, it might be worth processing at high sample rates to make sure there's no aliasing taking place in any of the plugins or any of the processing that you have. Um, lots of modern plugins do have anti-aliasing built in. I mean, it, it's interesting because I remember way back in the day, TC Electronic had some super high-end mastering hardware. They had the System 6000 um, processor, and that supported high sample rates a long time before they were available kind of here, there, and everywhere. Um, but even if you were running at 44.1, it would oversample uh, all of its processing. Um, so internally, it ran at a higher sample rate in order to avoid aliasing, and then it would apply correct anti-aliasing before outputting the audio to make sure that you didn't ever have any of those problems. And that might be one of the reasons that back then it was kind of revered for having such a great sound, because it had compressors and soft clipping and all the rest of it, which would have generated these harmonics. These days, it's much more commonplace. I mean, I was just messing around with the standard clip plugin uh, recently, and that you can choose two times, four times, eight times, 16 times oversampling. You can even have different amounts of oversampling depending on whether you're it's running live in a, in a session or whether you're bouncing something offline. Um, so that's going to deal very effectively with the aliasing um, if you want it to. You can also disable anti-aliasing so you can get those effects if you would like to. Um, but yeah, it's not guaranteed. And one example I saw mentioned on YouTube uh, was the Sound Toys Decapitator plugin, um, which is incredibly popular and, uh, you know, people love it and is used to mess up the sound in all kinds of interesting and creative ways, but it does actually cause aliasing distortion. I've heard people kind of saying, well, you shouldn't be doing that. It's emulating analog hardware, and this is a process that doesn't happen in outside of digital audio, um, so it absolutely shouldn't cause aliasing. Um, and then there's big, you know, kind of discussions between the fans of plugins like that saying, yeah, it's fine, you just run it at a higher sample rate, or I don't care, I love the way it sounds, it doesn't matter whether it's aliasing or not. Yeah, I, I go more for the the latter. Um, I just like the, the way it sounds, and, and you know, I want to hear distortion. Uh, aliasing distortion is going to be a little, make that a little bit more obvious. In a recording or mix session, I'd probably go along with that. Um, I'm not so sure that it has a place in mastering. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, everybody knows that I'm kind of cautious about using distortion in general in mastering. I feel like if you want that stuff as a creative effect, do it in the mix. Um, it's not to say I won't do it if somebody asks me to, but it's not something that I would do by default. And I would certainly think really hard about it. And then if that happens, should it be this kind of, because it, as far as I'm concerned, aliasing is a fault. It can be a fault that you can use creatively if you want to, but yeah, I, I keep coming back to the kind of the do no harm maxim, especially unintentionally. I think this is my, my point of view about it is you want to know what's happening. So if you're introducing aliasing distortion, then it should be a conscious choice rather than something that happens by accident. At the end of the day, if it sounds great and everybody loves it, it's no big deal. Well, and I mean, another issue we could talk about um, is is how audible it is. So to kind of understand that, you need to think a little bit about the different types of anti-aliasing filter. 
Ideally, you would have a filter that just chopped off everything uh, above, say, 20 kilohertz. Um, then you'll get no aliasing. In reality... Can't really do that. You, you can't really do that. You have to have a really sharp filter. And there are two uh, necessary properties of a filter like that. If it's going to be a traditional minimum phase filter, then it's going to have a big effect on the phase of the signal as you get up towards that cutoff point. Um, if you decide to go for a linear phase digital filter, then you have to accept that there's going to be a certain amount of pre and post ringing associated with that filter. And you, people get very hot under the collar about these these kind of things, arguing the pros and cons of, you know, should you have a more gentle anti-aliasing filter that, uh, yes, messes with the phase a little bit and allows a little bit more um, aliasing, but doesn't have any pre-ringing because, you know, pre-ringing where you, you hear a sound before it kind of is meant to happen is a particularly unnatural effect. Yeah. But the, the big question, I think, for me is how audible is it? Because we're talking about stuff that is way up above, you know, 18 kilohertz, typically. Yeah. Um, the What I don't like about uh, of having the anti-aliasing filter on or having oversampling on is the latency that it adds. And so maybe latency doesn't matter that much for mastering, but if you want to A-B a plugin, then you hear it, you got to wait for it to process it that buffer again before you can hear it. I think with the linear phase EQs and oversampling, it's, it's going to be a big problem. Potentially. I mean, it depends how, how the latency compensation works in the DAW. There are some, some plugins like the FabFilter Pro-Q allows you to kind of adjust the degree of phase linearity that's there so you can uh, mess around with that latency. That, this is the thing. There are pros and cons to all of these uh, different issues. So again, it's it has to be an informed choice, and yeah, it needs some experimenting. I mean, I guess you know you could you could do a bounce with one setting and a bounce with another setting, and then A B the bounced files. That would give you an in instantaneous switchover, but it's a bit of a headache. Yeah. Um, you could use my perception plugin to do yeah. <laughs> an instant loudness matched <laughs> bypass with sync compensation as well. Yeah, there is that. Um, <laughs> people kind of get really wound up about all these kind of issues and they are things that it's good to know about and good to understand and have a grip on. Um, but at the end of the day, it comes down to how does it fit my workflow? Is there actually an audible difference? I mean, I should, I think it's worth saying that there is sometimes an audible difference. I have heard people kind of going, ah, aliasing, schmaliasing. I don't know if they actually said that, but I imagine they did. Um, you know, uh, nobody ever hears this stuff. You've got to have bat ears. That's not true in my experience. If you take, for example, a, a hi-hat, you know, a really kind of thin, sizzly hi-hat, probably an electronic uh, uh, from a drum machine or a synthesized sound of some kind, um, and you put that through some kind of clipping or saturation processing for whatever reason, and that's aliasing, it has a dramatic impact on the tone. So, you know, something that sounded really thin and clear and clean to start off with can end up sounding quite gritty and grainy afterwards. Now, it might be that you like that and that's what you want, but you know, you, we can argue about that till the cows come home. My point is it it does have an audible effect on certain types of sounds and, and using certain types of processing, and it's not even particularly subtle. It's one of those things that, you know, if you're if you're thinking about the bass, you're probably not going to notice it, but if you're thinking about that hi-hat, you're going to hear that change. It's it's one of those things like if you ha have a piano and you want to saturate it a little bit, uh, it, you should expect kind of 
a bit of hair on it, but it shouldn't sound harsh in most cases, unless there's some of that aliasing distortion. I, I think piano is one of those things where everyone knows what a piano sounds like. And when it's off, it, it just sounds really unnatural. I think that's my problem with, or, or my reservation with aliasing distortion in general, is that it's, it's a, it's, it's like truncation distortion. You know, if you, if you haven't dithered correctly, um, it's a purely digital artifact. So in that sense, it's not something that we get in the real world. You know, the, the kind of distortion you get by overloading a tape or overdriving an amp or whatever, or all of those kinds of distortion they're I don't know. I, I, I feel like they're real in, in some, in some way, whereas aliasing distortion is kind of, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's a purely numerical error. It is that ironic thing of, you know, a plugin that sings the praise, the praises of emulating the, the 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 fantastic sound of analog, but introduces a digital fault. Yes, people might like the way that it sounds, but it's kind of everybody is talking about getting the analog sound, and you know, aliasing distortion just isn't analog sounding. Yeah. Um, so, and I, and again, it's one of those things you can't really get rid of. You can refilter it, you can you know try and soften it, and, and all the rest of it. Well, clipping distortion in particular hard digital clipping produces harmonics that just go up pretty much forever. Um, so when they get reflected down, they just cover the entire frequency spectrum. They don't stay up high. They, they're all the way down through the, you know, the whole sensitive region of the the ear and all the rest of it. Um, so it's, yeah, you, you've got to be, you've got to be really careful with it. It is a, a confusing topic, but it's, it's going to be situation dependent. I've never gotten into the habit of mixing or mastering at a higher sample rate than the source files. Just never got around to it, I guess. <laughs> the short answer, but we're going to have some links to all this stuff. The wagon wheel effect, if you guys couldn't understand, <laughs> uh, we'll have a, some videos to explain that. How dare you? I explained it so clearly that the pictures would be crystal in people's minds. I mean, it's really interesting because people agonize about what sample rate they should work at you know you said there that you hadn't got into the habit of working at higher sample rates and and you know there's there's people who are adamant that they have to work at 96 kilohertz or it doesn't sound right and there's people who are adamant that 44.1 is, is fine and nobody will ever hear a difference um i will say that i'm in a facebook group with a, a ton of uk pro engineers and there are a few in there who work at 96 kilohertz and ad are adamant about it but there are lots of them who work at 48 kilohertz or even 44.1 and don't really care. I get a kind of an even spread of stuff at higher sample rates and different sample rates. And we could put this link in the, the show notes as well, because it's not necessarily always a good thing to work at a higher sample rate. It depends on the converter and there's some possible downsides to that. So it's another thing that people need to be aware of, but we won't go down that rabbit hole this time. Um, what I would say is that even if I'm working at 44.1, I do religiously use oversampling in my mastering plugins. If I have oversampling, use it. When I introduce a new plugin into the, the workflow, if it's going to be something where I think that it could be generating those higher harmonics, I'm going to check out whether or not it supports oversampling. Uh, I mean, you have to hope that the oversampling has been well implemented by the, the people who wrote the plugin. You know, you, you could have some bugs that mean that it's not working the way that you expect it to. Uh, but I think typically if people are aware of the issue, they tend to have dealt with it in a sensible way. I do feel like probably agonizing about sample rate is one of those life is too short questions, which I guess is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, we have the technology to use oversampling and avoid these problems, uh, and kind of 
make a really clear distinction between, you know, you don't want to do it by accident. It's like, if you want to do it as a creative process, great, go for it. Um, and, you know, that's that's back to the kind of mastering maxim that we've had many times over the course of the show, which is, you know, do no harm and understand what the, the processing that you're doing does. So, yeah, great place to stop. Um, thank you, John, for helping me pick my way through the, the minefield of this topic. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for editing and mixing the show, as always. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.